Haul the roll and go. Where am I to go? Meet Johnny. Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Welcome to Where Am I to Go? Today we're at the Heart Mountain Relocation Camp. It's a Japanese relocation camp. Uh, they were relocated in the uh, 1940s. And we are here with Callie, who's going to be our guide through this museum. Hello. This, this is a very interesting museum. And I guess we're ready to get started. Let's let's go, Callie. Okay. Uh, so one quick correction I actually want to make, because this is something that a lot of people get really confused about, which is calling this a Japanese camp. And the thing is, a lot of people have this idea that this was a prisoner of war camp. And the thing was, it wasn't. This was a place where Japanese Americans were sent. Were there even any prisoner of wars here? No. Absolutely no, this, not. This place was entirely civilians, and it was entirely people who had been living in the United States. Either they were born here and they were American citizens, that was about two-thirds of the population here at the camp, or they had been living in the United States for a minimum of 18 years uh, because Japanese immigration had been cut off in 1924. So... That immigrant population wasn't allowed to become citizens, which makes it really complicated to say, okay, were they Japanese? Were they Japanese-American? How do you define those terms? But, I mean, it was a civilian population who had lived in the United States and considered the United States their home. And they weren't hostile. No, I mean, like I said, they considered themselves Americans, even the ones who were legally not allowed to get American citizenship at the time. So how did they end up here? Uh, <laughs> well, the short answer that was given in an official review of what happened that was done in the 1980s was war hysteria, race prejudice, and a failure of political leadership, which hmm. is a fancy way of saying, I mean, the early 1900s, the United States was a place where racism was just an accepted fact of life. If you think about it, that's the time when the Jim Crow laws were at their height. Right. And especially on the West Coast, a lot of that racial prejudice got turned against anyone from Asia. Originally, it was pointed at Chinese immigrants. There was this idea that the Chinese were stealing jobs or that they were uh, it even goes back. It, yep. it even goes back further than that. I know in the 1800s, a lot of the railroad workers yep, and some Chinese. of them were Chinese, and, yep. and the laundry people were Chinese, and they were kind of segregated to their own parts of town. And, exactly. And I think citizenship was even denied to them after the 14th Amendment. It was. <clears throat> that specifically stated that to become an American citizen, you had to be either white or of African descent. Right. And so. I mean, if you were Asian, you could not naturalize as an American citizen. And then what happened? Like you said, 1800s, you had a lot of Chinese workers here. Then there was this huge anti-Chinese push. And that ended up in the 1880s with the Chinese Exclusion Act, which basically said no Chinese laborers allowed in this country, period. No immigration. 
But then all of the people who had been using those laborers, they couldn't get anybody to take those low-paying jobs, and so they started looking for new sources of labor. And that's where the Japanese started coming in. The other thing that was going on at the time was this idea called the Yellow Peril. Have you ever heard of that? I have heard of that, actually. Okay, yeah, it's where you see this sort of demonic-looking, usually a Chinese man, actually, attacking. It's always a white woman. It's really weird. <laughs> um, but it's this weird paranoia, xenophobia, this idea of the, you know, strange, mysterious Asian other person. Not even a person, probably more like a beast. Right. Who's coming in to get you. And of course, you in this case is white, Western, colonizing, and actually... I hate to say this, but yeah, in the 1880s, it was absolutely about America being a colonial power. Right. Um, so there was this whole paranoia about just Asians. And it didn't really matter what country you were from. I actually kind of like a really interesting quote I heard once. There are no Asians in Asia. Because if you're in Asia, you are Chinese, you are Japanese, right. okay. you are Korean. But once you come to, like, the United States, all of a sudden you're just lumped in in a single category. Okay. So, I mean, that is the atmosphere right. that was going on in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And then we have Pearl Harbor. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Quite literally. Right. Um, and part of what happened was, I mean, people were upset, they were angry, they were looking for a really satisfying story, pretty much. They, the idea that the United States could get surprised by Japan like that, that they could lose a battle, uh, a lot of people couldn't wrap their minds around it, and so they looked for a scapegoat. And... That immediately got turned on the residential Japanese-American population in but the United States. But we see States. the same thing just 20 years ago when you have the Twin Towers fall and all of a sudden everybody from the Middle East is, is kind of classed into that same category. Oh, and yes. we don't have our relocation camps, but there was a lot of reparations yep against people that were in the community that were of, of uh, Middle Eastern descent. And there was talk of creating such camps. Um, and in fact, the Japanese-American community, pretty much as a group, stood up and said, wait, slow down, we have seen this happen before. And, I mean, that's part of the thing. This is a pattern that happens. And it's part of, in fact, why we have this museum, uh, is because, especially with the Japanese-American population, they understand that what's really scary about what happened is not that all of the specifics about the racism and then Pearl Harbor in particular. It's the fact that this can happen again. Well, I mean, and it also happened to Japanese, I mean, to the Germans during World War II. I was yeah. really surprised that they, that they did the same thing to certain German populations, and they did have German relocation camps also. Yeah, the Germans... They didn't get the mass removal of an entire population the way the Japanese Americans were. Uh, but if you look back at, for example, World War I, the backlash against Germans was a lot stronger then. Here, you had a 
it, here being World War II, there was a visibly different population that it was easy to cast blame on, which might be why it was a little more blanket. Right. And by that I mean, so you had about 120,000 Japanese Americans living on the West Coast, which was about 90% of the entire Japanese American population. And what was their and what was their, their their demographic? I mean, they were they were business owners, they were farm workers, they were they were landowners. Most of them were just at the stage of becoming landowners, which was really hard for them because going back to what was going on with the racism on the coast, uh, most of the coastal states had passed laws stating that no alien ineligible for American citizenship could actually own land. Which okay. was, at the time, that was basically a coded way of saying Japanese um, or Asian in general, because, as we discussed earlier, they couldn't become citizens. Okay. Um, usually, then- they got around that by holding land in the name of their children, but it was really precarious for them. That being said, most of them were farmers, and they were really successful farmers, too, especially in the area of truck crops, which are things like strawberries, raspberries, celery, uh, crops that are really kind of hard to do in a mass agribusiness style. Um, It's called stoop labor. You have to get out in the fields and bend down and work in the dirt and it was usually relatively low paying, and so a lot of white farmers didn't want to do that. So it had become a niche for the Japanese. Well, and, and that's something else I think that we'll probably touch on later, because I know you've got exhibits that way. Yes, But the Japanese came to Wyoming where our soil is just not really good, <laughs> and yeah. they were able to be pretty much self-sufficient from what I understand with their gardening and, and that type of stuff in what we would consider not very fertile soil and, and not really uh, adaptable to growing great crops. I mean, we do have yeah. some, we have great <laughs> crops, but but they were really successful in growing oddball things here that, that mm-hmm. most of us wouldn't be able to grow. And actually, that is part of why Wyoming was chosen. For these people. So if you think about the time period, we're looking at kind of the end of the Homestead Act. A lot of the good agricultural land had already gotten snapped up, but there was a lot of marginal land that hadn't been claimed yet. So when these camps were created, and I mean, I can get into why I'm calling these just camps in a minute, but when they were created, There were a lot of restrictions on where they could be. They had to be a certain distance away from anything that was considered a militarily important installment, like a dam or a particular power station. They had to be close, but not too close, to a population center of some kind. And, I mean, by population center, usually they were near a very small rural community, And near, you probably could not walk there. And then the other thing that they were looking for was potential farmland. So what you ended up with was these camps getting put in very marginal lands that almost were good for farming, but nobody had wanted them, and that's why they were open and available. 
And the Japanese were able to make them very productive. Yes, and they had gotten a reputation for that because going back to all of the tensions about land in California, um, usually the only land that they could get ownership of was marginal land. It was desert. It was swamps. And so the entire population had gotten a reputation for being really good at developing land. And the idea was, well, we'll put them in these remote areas, they will be away from everybody, and in addition, they're going to develop this land for us. And then once they're cleared off, the land is going to be available for farmers. And so there was an executive order signed that allowed for, for the gathering and the shipping off of, of the Japanese off of the West Coast. Yes. Is that correct? Executive Order 9066. Uh, the interesting part about that order is specifically what it says is that the military in charge of particular regions could designate military zones and exclude anyone they wanted from those zones for any reason. And you may notice that's really broad. Nowhere does it say Japanese. Nowhere does it say Japanese American. Nowhere does it say enemy alien. Nowhere does it say anything about who they might be. Um, and this was a countrywide order. In fact, one of the really interesting things is the places where these orders didn't get used. These, the general in charge of the West Coast could have used this to get rid of all of the Italians and all of the Germans. The general in charge of Hawaii could have used it to get rid of all of the Japanese Americans, and they made up 50% of the population of Hawaii. There were as many Japanese Americans in Hawaii as there were pretty much on the entire continent of the United States. They didn't use wow. the order. I mean, they had some camps, but they didn't want to do a mass exclusion. Frankly, they couldn't afford to do it, but also they weren't afraid of the Japanese Americans in Hawaii. They were just part of the society. Along the west coast of the United States, you got an unfortunate mix of this intense anti-Japanese fear that was going around, all of the social backlash, the fact that there was a long anti-Japanese history in the region, and you also had a general who was very, very afraid of being in charge of the next Pearl Harbor, which meant he kind of believed every story he heard. Uh, one of the funniest accounts I heard, uh, General DeWitt, who was in charge of the army and then the general in charge of the navy, in the late December, after Pearl Harbor, they kept reporting all of these new, all of these radio broadcasts, Japanese broadcasts, all over the place. And the intelligence agency that was actually in charge of radio transmissions had no idea what was going on because they weren't picking any of this up. <laughs> wow. Guess what they found out in early January? The Army and the Navy were reporting each other's radio <laughs> transmissions as enemy radio transmissions. Huh. They just weren't used <laughs> to interpreting radio transmissions at that point. Right. But the problem was that by then the idea of Japanese spies are using their radios to communicate with Japanese submarines. 
That idea had gotten into everybody's heads, including General DeWitt. And so he actually said reports of enemy radio transmissions as part of his justification when he was asked to argue in favor of creating these camps, despite the fact that it had been disproven. That's still going on. <laughs> so many correlations to modern-day times. Well, yes. I mean, fundamentally, much of this story is a human story. It's what happens when people are frightened, when they have somebody that they think is an easy target. I mean, that's... Scapegoats are... Scapegoats are... Yeah, everywhere. scapegoating, pretty yes. much. Okay, well, let's, let's kind of move on through the museum. Okay. <laughs> Although you I'm lost already. I, I, I think I just walked into the, the, the bathroom hallway instead of the museum hallway. Actually, we got to go through the right, theater, don't we? have to go we? through the theater. Yeah. Although, in fact, the bathrooms are part of our exhibit, which I have yes. always considered one of the more amusing aspects of this. Although, the actual story isn't all that amusing. Um... The story with the bathrooms is that when they built these camps, they were built using army barracks as the basic outline for what they were building. And the thing is, army camps are not designed for having women around, especially, you know, a 1940s army's camp. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're not designed for having the elderly around, and they're, they're not designed for having small children around. <laughs> so you got things like in the latrine area, there were no divisions. You didn't have individual stalls. Everybody could see what you were doing when you sat down to do your business. Mm. They also didn't have child-sized seats. So there were concerns about children um, falling through, although I think it never actually happened. Did they actually have the sewage systems and, and that type of stuff, or were they more just uh, outhouse-style latrine? I believe they did actually put in proper sewage systems. And a water it. system and yes. that type and, of stuff? Yeah, they had water, but the water was only in central areas. Um, also, so, that was more of a community latrine. Right. So the camp was laid out in blocks, and each block had, at Hart Mountain, it was 24 barracks buildings with six apartments per building. Um, apartment basically meant one room, every family got a single room. Um, every family got right. a single room. Right, so and that's... And these rooms, you've got, you've got mock-ups in we here. We do, and we'll we get to those we later. We'll be getting to. So we'll, so we'll save that part of the okay, story for when we get good. there. Now, we entered this room where yes. this, this is a room that has basically information on yeah. what they were allowed to bring. Yep. So uh, the museum is a timeline, basically. We started off in the pre-war area. The idea is that the theater, we have a short documentary that we show that's basically the moment of Pearl Harbor as told by people who were here at Heart Mountain. Kind of one of the fundamental ideas of this museum was to tell the story of the Japanese Americans in their own words and as much as possible in their own voices. So for the documentary, rather than having somebody narrate it, uh, the filmmaker went out and interviewed people who had been incarcerated here at Heart Mountain. And, and it is a very interesting film. I've, yes. I've, I need to admit, I'm kind of narcoleptic, so I've seen the <laughs> film in segments about five different times, 
This is a museum that I, I always really encourage any visitors uh, that come to, to my part of the country to go come and visit. It's not one that I would say is super well known. In fact, most yeah. most people don't even understand the story right. of, the, of the relocation. And yes. that's kind of shocking to them that we actually relocated people. Mm -hmm. But the museum has done so tastefully that I, I just love to have people come here and see what this is. And so I've been here several times and I've slept through the film <laughs> at different points at several different times. But I think I've seen the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, yes, but, yes, especially when the lights go down. Yeah, but but it is a, it is very informative and, and has a lot of pictures from from mm -hmm. the time that actually happened. And the other thing that's kind of neat, I think, about your museum is you can actually talk to people, and you've been taking these histories for a period of time to where you were able to talk to people that were actually here. Mm -hmm. It's not like it happened long enough ago that there aren't any survivors that can that can talk about the times that they had here. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the more striking things about a museum dedicated to this history is that this is still in living memory. Um, and it's part of why we have our annual pilgrimage, although this year is, unfortunately, we had to cancel it. I think um, everybody's canceled everything. Pretty much, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, I mean, if you think about it, most of the people who were in Heart Mountain as children or as teenagers... They are now in their 80s and 90s and pushing 100. So we are kind of very protective of them. Right. <laughs> and we really didn't want to risk bringing them out here because, I mean... The age factor, definitely. Yeah. And, and these people are treasures. I mean, especially if you see Norm Mineta and Al Simpson together. I mean, first of all, they are amazing people. Second of all, their friendship is such an incredible story. Uh, so Norm Mineta was actually incarcerated here at Heart Mountain as a child, and Al Simpson lived in the area. They were both Boy Scouts, and Al Simpson's troopmaster said, okay, we're packing up and going to Heart Mountain for a jamboree, which apparently a lot of the kids were kind of freaked out about doing. <laughs> but uh, Norm and Al ended up sharing a pup tent. And Alan Simpson is a senator from Wyoming. Yes, that was, correct. He Sorry. was a senior senator, mm -hmm. senator for a lot of years. And then Norm Mineta was a congressman. Oh, really? And then he was secretary of transportation okay. for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and they are still friends, despite being on opposite sides of the political aisle. And despite all of the history... They are really close friends. They work together. And they are also basically a comedy routine, if you get friends of them in the same room. <laughs> it's just so much fun to listen to them. Okay. Well, now, so, this yes. display over here, uh, this is what they were allowed to bring, correct? Yes. Uh, but there is one detail that's kind of important to understand about that. That's what an entire family would bring. That was the so entire family. Yes. So, so you've got pretty much... Eh, call it five suitcases there and one duffel bag. So you probably had a family of five or six. Because the rule was that when people were told to move out of their homes, they could only bring what they could carry. And, and were, there was a weight limit on that too, was there not? I, I heard think rumor that so. there was a like I mean, 500 pound well, weight limit. Well, or, there's a fundamental weight limit in how much the human body can well, lift as well. Well, that's true too, yes. And there were also limits on what you could bring. Cameras were considered contraband. 
I think actually sewing machines were considered contraband as well. Um, huh. And the other thing that happened was once you'd packed everything up, of course, once you got the notice to do this, you generally only had about two weeks to decide what you were going to bring and what you were going to do with what you couldn't bring. Like, and did what, they have any idea where they were going? No. In fact, they weren't even going to the camps at that point because the locations for the camps hadn't been decided yet. When the initial orders went through, they were packed up and sent to what were called assembly centers. And these were basically converted fairgrounds, converted racetracks, pretty much any place that you could quickly convert over into being a holding area for a large population. Um, So, yeah, there's a story about people, and like if they got sent to racetracks, Quite often, you and your family got stuck in a horse stall that was very quickly washed down and whitewashed. And, yeah, you could still smell that it was a horse stall and, you know, not... So they didn't didn't really know what winters were like in Wyoming. They'd been living their whole lives in in California. Yep. And then they get to come here. Right. So they stayed in those assembly centers for a couple months. And that was the period when the locations of the camp were being chosen, according to the the criteria we talked about earlier. And also, that was the time when they were starting to build the camps. Hard Mountain was basically built in a month. Wow. Um, When they were building the barracks, the people doing the construction actually bragged about being able to get an entire barracks building from foundation to roof done in under an hour. Which also meant that they ran into things like running out of lumber, and so they were using green wood to build, which, if you've ever had to actually do construction, green wood shrinks. Yeah. So you got cracks in the wall and knot holes falling out. Um, And, yeah, when we get to the barracks, we'll talk more about that. Yeah, yeah. We're we're getting closer, folks, to the barracks. (laughs) But right now, we're looking at a a diorama that they have here of how everything was set out in the camp. And there is a lot of barracks here. It's a lot of barracks. Heart Mountain had over 10,000 people. The peak recorded population was 10,767 people. Wow. Um, And they had their own school. Their yep. own hospital. Now, was the hospital staffed by Japanese or was it staffed by military or, or how was that staffed? And the schools, too. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, most of the doctors working at the hospital were Japanese American. Uh, a lot of the nurses were white. Um, and that was actually a point of serious conflict because there were official limits put on how much the Japanese Americans could be paid, such that if you were a really skilled worker, a doctor, like lots of training, this is a specialized thing, you would get paid $19 a month because that was below what a private in the army was getting paid per month. And the official restriction was that they had to pay them less than a private in the army. Wow. There was a real push for basically punishing the Japanese Americans, probably because the Japanese empire was out of reach. Um, 
So yeah, you got the doctors in the hospital who were getting paid about $230 a year, and then you would get them working alongside white nurses who were getting paid $1,800, almost $2,000 a year. So one of their big problems, once the Japanese Americans were able to leave, which if they could find a job that was outside that exclusion zone on the West Coast, they were allowed to leave, provided they passed a loyalty questionnaire. We'll get to that later. Um, once that was an option, the, the doctors had no incentive to stay. Oh, yeah. Um, and there was a shortage of physicians because most of them were going to the army. Now, did the same hold true like with the school teachers and, and some of that stuff? That was a little less of an issue. The issue with getting Japanese-American teachers was actually that most of them had never been able to get licenses. Um, that They hadn't been allowed to take the test. Huh. But, I mean, some of them did have training, and local people were hired to teach as well. So there were a number of locals who taught. Now, we've just got several different displays of, of things that were here at the camp. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I they have, did they have their own fire department? They did. And, in fact, it had an incredible reputation. I'm seeing some fire badges here yep, so, yep. so that people on audio can understand what right. I'm looking at. A little rip wagon and some other so things. So if you think about it, all of these barracks, they're made of wood. The wood dries out in the desert. And every single one of those six apartments in a single barracks building has a coal-fired stove. Most of these people are also not used to needing stoves because they, many of them are from California. Not all of them. There were some from Oregon and from Washington, but... I mean, people made mistakes with stove, and fires were a really big hazard. So yes, the Heart Mountain Fire Department got a reputation for being one of the fastest responding departments in the state. Oh, really? To the point that there were times when they got called out of Heart Mountain because help was needed somewhere else, and they were known for being good at what they did. So were there a lot of fires here? Yeah, there were a lot of fires. And in fact, you can actually see a picture I, yes. on the display right there. It was just a hazard. And the other thing was, um, there was electricity in the barracks. And people tended to overload the electricity. Um, sometimes they bought things that they weren't supposed to. And we can talk about, a bit about that in the barracks mock-up. But... People would do things like try to fix broken fuses by putting pennies in. <laughs> can't do that with modern fuses, and you can't do it for a reason. You start fires that way. Yeah, I won't say that I've ever done that on a car. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. <laughs> no, did they have outside work, or was most of their work that they did uh, here at the camp? A lot of it was outside. I mean... Bear in mind, this is the war, there's a major labor shortage, especially of, you know, young men, because they are all going off and joining the army. So there was actually a real problem in Wyoming and Montana with the sugar beet crop. Okay. Because all of the people who were supposed to harvest it were gone. And so a lot of the Japanese Americans were given a chance to leave the camp 
and go work at doing this harvest. And they're basically credited with saving the 1942 beet crop. And, and was, was this all permit? I'm sure it was all a permit thing because yeah. you do have guard towers around right. to, uh, to that, are, the that camp, are still here. You had here. to get a permit. And also in terms of like these mass hiring scenarios, a lot of that had to get negotiated with the governor and with local mayors. You had this really funny thing going on where many of the like mayors, the governor, they all were saying, no, you have to keep them in this camp. And all of the farmers and business owners were saying, no, let them out. We need the labor. We need the customers. Okay. Um, that was particularly the case with Powell. Um, so we're about halfway between Cody and Powell, where we are located right now. Cody was relatively hostile to the Japanese Americans. Um, it had signs going up saying, no Japs allowed, which, I mean, that's a slur right there. Right. But Powell was relatively friendly. Part of that was because uh, there was a young woman, Mary Oyama there, and we actually talk about her a bit. She was a journalist, and she started a column in the Powell newspaper. And it's actually kind of cute to read through. Um, it's very chatty in tone and very much a friendly, hi, we're neighbors, here's what our life is like. But she'd also kind of go out of her way to challenge rumors that were spreading, like, oh, the Japanese Americans are getting fed beef every day. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing what people will believe. So she would answer to challenges like that and say, no, this is what it's like. If you want to know more, feel free to come in. I will send you copies of our newspaper. They did. They had their own newspaper, they printing did. press here on, yes. on site. The Heart Mountain Sentinel. And that was, I mean, it basically served the function of any city newspaper. It talked about events. It had an obituary. It gave announcements. Um, and it also had a Japanese language section, which took them a while to get set up. But not all of that first generation of immigrants had really mastered English. Um, most of their children, the ones who were born in the United States, barely spoke enough Japanese to get by with their parents. But the older generation, not all of them were fluent in English. And so they kind of tried to set things up so that they would have a good source of information as well. Okay. Yeah, this is this is such an interesting place, and yeah. it's very tastefully done. I, I really enjoy this museum. <clears throat> okay, now we're to the barracks. We are. And and what they've done here is they've got. I guess this is the size of what the rooms were. Yes. And uh, they've got a mock-up of what the barracks were. Were these actual barracks that have been restored or were no, these just... No, no, uh, this is newly redone. An actual barracks would not have nearly so smooth a wall. Um, All but, rough cut lumber. Yeah, but this is pretty much what it would look like except that the floor is nicer. And we're in a room that's about, what, 12 by uh, it's 18 see, I long? I believe it's 20 by 16. 20 by 16. This is the smallest of the barracks rooms. There were three sizes. And you put a full family in each one of these rooms. Right. So a room this size would get probably a family of four at max. Um, 
You might get newlywed couples in a room like this. Uh, another thing that happened was there were bachelors and bachelorettes as well. Mostly bachelors. Young women still generally stayed with their families until they married at that time. But you would get a bunch of singles together and put them in one of these rooms just so that you didn't have anybody taking up a single room all to themselves. The other thing that's interesting about this, yes, I maybe should have turned off the sound I was going to say, we've got, we've, got a, we've got a sound, you can hear it in the yes. background, they've got uh, kind of uh, audio going that, mm-hmm. that kind of gives you a feeling of the wind coming through. Yeah, and the wind, because, the sort of conversations people would have had as they walked in. Right, um, and, and as you were saying, they, they did all of this green, so that means all of your wood... Uh, shrank, right? And it was just covered with tar paper on the outside, correct? Exactly, and no so, insulation, right? So you've got bare walls. You've also got no ceiling. It just goes straight up to the rafters, which is a real problem because if you think about it, one of the things a ceiling is supposed to do is it helps keep heat from rising oh, yeah. out of reach. So, I mean, you've got the giant stove in the back there, and most of the heat from that would go straight up. Plus, normally the triangular area above the wall where the rafters were, there wasn't anything in there. That was open space. So you could also hear everything that from was going on. I have actually seen somebody's illustration of a barracks building where they drew the barracks building and from one end somebody goes at you. And from the far end you see bless you. <laughs> <laughs> They had a sense of humor about this, which is probably part of why they managed. Well, and the thing, and the thing that, that is really amazing to me is the homesteaders, they built back into hills, they built log homes, they built stuff like that, but they had to chink it up really well in order to keep the heat in. But this, Wyoming is not a warm state in the winter. No. In fact, from October, we might have a really nice, what they call Indian summer, where, mm-hmm. where it gets up to 65 degrees during the day, <laughs> but it'll still drop down to 30 at night. And yeah. then as you get into January and February, 30, and 30 below is not unheard of. Right. 20 below is, is heard of quite a bit. And hanging out at zero at night is, is basically the norm. Yeah. And the other thing is, as we talked about earlier, many of these people came from California. They had no idea where they were going to be sent and probably didn't even own winter coats. Were they issued winter coats? Ultimately, the Army did issue them some surplus pea coats, uh, which... Remember we were talking about this awkwardness of size where you don't plan for having small children? Um... A lot of people actually did smuggle in sewing machines, and they did a lively business altering clothes. And a pea coat, just for those that don't know, it's a, it's a wool full-length coat that the Navy pea coats were, and it was a fairly heavy wool. Yeah. But still, it would, I can't imagine trying to fit a kid without, yeah. without having a seamstress someplace to mm. take care of that. Yeah, nobody froze, but it was definitely not comfortable. No, the other thing, uh, they were issued army blankets. Every person got two blankets. Um, There's an a kind of interesting account from one of the administrators. Administrators lived um, on the camp. They had their own sort of living area, and they basically were.
were living in barracks buildings as well, they had insulation on theirs and they had more blankets. And there's one of them who said, in the winter, I have six blankets piled on my bed and I'm still cold. I have no idea how these people are managing with only two. Especially coming from California where they're not used to this heat cold cycle like like we are living here. Yeah, I mean, the, the extremes were very painful for them. And and we can have big swings in temperature. It yeah. can be it can be fifty degrees during the day and ten below at night. Exactly. Uh, and I'm sure there was a lot of snuggling going on. <laughs> there was like, like families of four inside of one twin size bed. <laughs> there was, on the other hand, the uh, more entertaining form of snuggling was often very awkward. Oh, I'm you, sure. Can you imagine doing that with? Everybody in your Listening family in the, barracks, in the yes. same room, and yes, the entire barracks knows what's going on. Yes. So yes, um, I mean, so uh, we've moved over to the other room now. Obviously, this is the largest size of room available. You basically, I mean, you're looking at families of six to eight. And this room's what? Probably twenty by twenty-four. Yes. So as I said, this is the largest. Only the biggest families got rooms like this. And this is kind of what it looked like after they had been here for a year or two. So, I mean, you may notice that all of a sudden, hey, look, there are actual walls and there's a ceiling. Um, the army eventually did deliver the necessary insulation, but it had to be installed yourself when you were here. Uh, the other thing is furniture. People could buy furniture, but usually what they did was people who had a talent for woodcrafting would take old crates and things and refashion it into desks, into shelving, into wardrobes, and basically anything you needed. It was basically a self-sufficient community. It was. I mean, as you said, school, hospital, and then people put together living spaces. And they would do things like hang curtains for privacy. Like, okay, maybe we don't have walls and doors we can shut, but at least you can pull the curtain closed so people know you want to be left alone for a while. Right. And there's still there's still more barracks on this uh, location that aren't restored yet that are up on top of the hill. Those are actually hospital buildings. Oh, those, those, those yes. are the hospital buildings. So... What happened was after the camp closed, um, the land was parceled out to new homesteaders. And part of, so that was a lottery. And part of participating in that was that you had to promise you were going to improve the land. Well, you had the option of buying half a barracks building for sometimes it got as low as $1. Now, you had to move it onto your land on your own dime. But and those are all over the basin. I've done work for... Exactly. I, I did a job in Warland, Wyoming, which is 75 miles from here. Yeah. And there was... It was a whole set of barracks. There were two of them. It was mm -hmm. a duplex. And when they were taking the siding off, it said Heart Mountain yep. Uh, yep. On the, above the door. Oh, yeah. They are all through this area. But very few of them are actually on the land where they originally were. I mean, they're just scattered at this point. Right. 
But you do have several. The, the hospital buildings yes, are still uh, up there, the, along, there with are, the, along with the chimney. Yeah, that, there are three hospital buildings that are left, and then there's one that was administrative housing. So okay. that's where the people who were actually running the camp would have lived. Like the person who wrote about having six blankets and still being cold. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now this is just a, a nice, nice display. How, how old is the museum? You guys have only been here, what, five years, six years? We opened 2011. 2011. So... Okay. A lot of sort of this exhibit is about halfway through a standard exhibit life cycle, which permanent exhibits normally you revisit them every 20 years or so. And now we get to an interesting part of this whole deal. <laughs> yes. You're moved from California, you're shoved to Wyoming in the cold at Heart Mountain, and then you still get to serve in the military. Yeah. You're not you're not safe to be on the West Coast, but you're safe to be on a ship with a whole bunch of other Americans. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the story of the 442nd is pretty amazing. Um, it got started actually as the 100th, and that was a group of Hawaiian Japanese Americans. And remember, Hawaii didn't do this. Hawaii right. didn't set up these camps. Um, and one of the arguments was, well, if we can send some of them out to fight, then they can prove their loyalty. Now, this raises interesting questions of how do you prove loyalty? But they were sent to Italy to some of the hardest fighting and acquitted themselves very well. At which point the army said, hey, we like these guys, send more. And so they opened up volunteer military service at the camps, thinking that, of course, many, many people will volunteer and it will all be great. That didn't happen, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, a lot of the young men who were here at Heart Mountain and at the other camps, there were 10 of these camps. There were 10 of them throughout the U.S. Yes. Um, and so a lot of the young Nisei men. Uh, Nisei means second generation, so these are the Japanese Americans born in the United States and therefore citizens by birth. Um, they volunteered immediately after Pearl Harbor. They wanted to fight then, and they got classified as enemy aliens. <laughs> they were wow. kicked out and told, no, you are the enemy. And then, as you said, you get rounded up, you get sent to a place like this, and hey, do you want to volunteer to fight again? I think you can imagine I, the usual answer. Yeah. Um, so the turnout was not what they wanted, and the 442nd was going into the hardest fighting. They have, for the size and length of service, the most military awards. They are the most decorated unit in wow. American history. And that's because a lot of them died. And a lot of them got seriously injured, and they needed more people to replace it. And the thing was, World War II, military units are segregated. They had to be racially segregated. The 442nd was the only Japanese-American unit. There was uh, African-American units. So in order to replenish the manpower of the 442nd, they needed more Japanese-Americans. 
And that's when the draft got instituted in these camps. They drafted in these camps. Yep. And that, that story actually ties into, we talked about the loyalty questionnaire earlier. And originally this was a set of questions. It was mostly about, you know, can you tell us who your family was? Where have you lived? And then there were two questions that were kind of considered the core of the questionnaire, and they were kind of a problem. And we actually have them up on the wall for people to look at. Well, question 27, are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty wherever ordered? And question 28, will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any or all attack by foreign or domestic forces and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor or any other foreign government, power, or organization? So... Can you tell me why those might have been a problem? Now, bear in mind, we're talking about loyal Americans, people who really do care about being Americans. Why would those questions be a problem? Well, that one word, willing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of them were afraid on question 27. Are you willing to serve in the armed forces? They were afraid that was a trap. They thought, if I say yes, is somebody going to assume that means I'm volunteering? Well, and then it also says wherever ordered. Right. Just kind of a big... Yeah, it's very open-ended. And so for a lot of them, that question 27 was just... It was scary. The question 28, the one about unqualified allegiance, that one was more of a tricky one because of that second half. Forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor. So... If you say yes to that, does that mean you are confessing to having been loyal to the Japanese emperor? Good question. And that's what a lot of them were afraid of. Again, they were worried that that might be a trap. So and why should they be concerned about anything being a trap? <laughs> Gee, I wonder. It's not like they're being confined behind barbed wire. Taken from their homes. And, yeah. So, yeah, that particular question uh, got to be a problem. Most people answered yes and yes to that. Um, some answered no to one or the other or tried to write in qualifications. Um, others said no, no, and they ended up getting sent to the camp at Tule Lake. So you may have heard of the novel No-No Boy. No. Okay, it's a pretty well-known Japanese-American history novel. And it's about one of the people who said no and no on that questionnaire. And where's Tule Lake? Tule Lake is actually in California, but it's outside that military exclusion zone. It happened to have the most people who answered no and no on that questionnaire. And so it got turned into a segregation camp where they separated out all of the people who were disloyal. Um, and then the other thing that happened, so the questionnaire was sort of the first wave, and that got a lot of people upset. And then you got the draft coming through. Um, and Heart Mountain in particular is known for what's called the Fair Play Committee. Okay. So the Fair Play Committee were the draft resistance. 
Heart Mountain was the only camp where there was an organized draft resistance movement. And it was a group of young men who said, we are able-bodied and willing to serve in the army, but we want our rights as citizens clarified. You have to clarify, are we citizens or are we not? Because if we are citizens, you have no right to keep us here. And so they were basically saying, we are doing this as a constitutional challenge. We think that drafting us out of these camps is unconstitutional. And it led to the largest mass trial in Wyoming history, actually, because they were all arrested as draft resistors. Really? And um, I haven't even heard of this part of yeah. so, Wyoming history. Yep. The Wyoming 63 is kind of what they're called. Those are members of the Fair Play Committee who had received draft notices and did not report for their pre-induction physical. And that was their way of saying, no, I will not answer the draft. That went on for about a month, and then federal marshals came in and arrested all of them once they'd gotten up to about 63. And then they had this large mass trial. Um, obviously, our exhibit talks about a lot of this, and I'm not going to give away all of our secrets no, because no, I no. want to tempt people to visit. We do want people um, to visit. But pretty much what happened was they were trying to do this as a constitutional argument. We, this is a test case of our rights. Uh, the judge had absolutely no patience for that. And they had given up their right to a jury trial because they didn't think they would get fair shrift from a local jury. Right. So all of them were convicted of resisting the draft and sentenced to prison. The I guess they can't draft felons, so <laughs> yeah. they, they succeeded. In a way. The interesting thing is there were other draft resistors at other camps, and usually what the judge would say was, well, okay, technically you're resisting the draft, but just go home. You're living in a prison already. Or one judge fined every draft resistor out of these camps one penny. Hmm. Sort of as acknowledgement of, okay, technically speaking, you are resisting the draft, but at the same time, given the circumstances, it's kind of hard to blame them for it. Interestingly, the leadership of the Fair Play Committee mostly were people who were not eligible for the draft. Um, they were either immigrant generation, which meant that they weren't citizens and therefore weren't eligible, or they had families and therefore were exempt. Um, they ended up getting rounded up and tried separately for encouraging resistance to the draft. Interestingly, they also rounded up a newspaper reporter who was the one person who had spoken in favor of this movement, uh, who was also tried for conspiracy. The newspaper reporter got off under freedom of the press and the fact that he had never talked to any of these people before, which made conspiracy really hard to prove. Um, the other leaders were initially convicted, but um, were acquitted on appeal later. So but did it end up going all the way to the Supreme Court? or did This one did not. Uh, there which were... is unfortunate because at that point 
certain uh, things would have maybe changed in, in favor of the way they should have. Not given the Supreme Court's record from other cases. Because really? there were uh, four major cases that went up to the Supreme Court. Three, the Supreme Court basically said, well, the Army says that this is necessary, and so we aren't going to question them. Hmm. Um, and I would then, have thought on the constitutional issue that, that they may have well, had, had enough valid point to, to be able to push your case. And pretty much what happened was there was this question of do you push a constitutional question in times of war? And that has continued to be a point of debate right. in the United States. Um, at the time, uh, you have Fred Hirabayashi or, sorry, Fred Korematsu and Gordon Hirabayashi. Um, those are kind of the two big names. Uh, those were both people who had tried to resist the orders to get sent to these camps and were convicted, and the Supreme Court decided to uphold the military orders. Okay. <clears throat> and then this room here is basically... Uh... Survivor, not survivor. Uh, uh, after the camp. After the camp yeah. stories. Right. So this is kind of what happened after the camps closed. Because they did eventually close. Um, I mentioned the Supreme Court cases. One of them was Mitsuye Endo. Uh, she was a young woman who had obeyed all of the orders, had gone to the camp. And then the uh, American Civil Liberties basically said, can we use you as a test case? You have made your. You have been a model citizen. We're going to take her case to the court on the grounds that it's against the Constitution to block someone from going to work and living. So she had done everything right. She had passed the loyalty questionnaire, and the argument was, you have no right to hold her at this point. And the Supreme Court said, you know, that's correct. You cannot hold these people in the camp at this point if they have already passed the loyalty questionnaire and followed the rules. Interestingly, the Supreme Court only announced that particular decision after the 1944 election. Hmm. And the, the suspicion is that they deliberately delayed so that the president could announce the closure of the camps and then they would announce their decision. Huh. And then you've got when they when they were released, uh, the people that were interred here kind of went all over the United States. They didn't all just go back to California, right? Well, so <clears throat> this map, the normally it has lights on it. Uh, we currently are doing. Oh, we don't uh, touch. Right, we are currently <laughs> doing a no touchy procedure, so you can't push the buttons. Um, but it shows where people went by year, and the thing was. The eastern area of the United States, all except that narrow band along the west, was open to people moving out. Hmm. Um, mostly they went to Minneapolis, they went to Chicago. Those were places that had kind of communities starting to open up for them. Once these camps were officially closed, that ended the exclusion orders because Pretty much the answer was, you can't keep these people away from their homes. And technically, their homes were still back where they had been removed from. They, they did not end up forfeiting their homes? Their homes were still... Well, there. remember when I said that they had about two weeks to decide right. what to do? Most, some of them had to sell their homes. 
uh, which they usually did not get very good prices in the process because people knew that they didn't have much choice. Others boarded things up and hoped for the best. Uh, some found people who would lease from them. Um, basically, it was up to you what you did with your home. So a lot of them still had their farms, their houses, their shops back there, hopefully. A lot of it got vandalized while they were gone or just not taken care of or squatters moved in. Um, but it was still technically where they had been removed from. And the answer was, you can't keep these people from going back anymore. And that ended the exclusion order. Okay. Yeah, this is all so interesting. <laughs> then I guess it kind of brings us back to, to where we came in. You've yeah, got a nice so, little gift shop with some really nice videos. And, and then this last section right here is the long term after the camp. Oh, okay. Um, which a lot of people don't think about necessarily, but the camp has had a long-running impact. I mentioned the... Uh, congressional review that happened in the 1980 and I actually quoted that line underneath the title. The broad historical causes were race, prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. From the commission of wartime re relocation and internment of civilians. Yep. So pretty much what happened was around the late 1960s, um, up until then, the Japanese Americans just hadn't said anything about what happened for various reasons. They were afraid of backlash if they said anything, or they were ashamed, or they just wanted to forget what happened. But in the 1960s, you got the post-war generation starting to grow up. And you also got the civil rights movement getting started. You also had the Vietnam War, which the backlash against that opened up a space for criticizing the government that hadn't really existed before. So that started a pushback, a push for a redress movement. People who wanted the government to go back and actually answer the question, was this constitutional? Was this justified? And the conclusion was, no, it wasn't. Um, basically, the commission went back. They looked over the information that would have been available to military leaders at the time regarding whether or not the Japanese Americans were a threat and concluded, no. Based on the information that was available at the time, this was not a justified move to make. And that's why they made that conclusion about what was really going on was the hysteria and a lot of racism. Um, so it talks a bit about that. And then I mentioned earlier that the Japanese American community has continued to be very active because they're aware. I mean, as Americans, it's really easy for us to say, there can't possibly be something like this happening. We've got our constitution. We've got our civil liberties. We have rule of law. And the thing is, all of that existed at the time. Right. And so, kind of, a, what a lot of Japanese Americans who experience these camps have decided is we need to use this experience as a way of reminding people that this can happen again so that we can be careful not to let it. And, and this is, this museum is on one of the 10 sites yes. that were across the United States. 
Do any of the other sites have museums and have they been brought up to this level of wanting to make the public aware? There are several museums. Um, the biggest one is at Manzanar. Which is? That is in California. And that's kind of, that one has been taken over by the National Park Service, so it's kind of the biggest okay. site. And a lot of that, I mentioned that the Heart Mountain site, it got parceled up and given right. away. One of the reasons that we are down here, rather than up the hill, where the actual residential area where all the barracks were. The reason we're down here is that this land was available. What's up there is now private farmland. But still, up there you've got a monument for the soldiers. Yeah, there's a small strip that is still public land. Okay. Um, and that's where the honor roll is. And the honor roll was actually originally erected during the camp itself. It's a list of names for all of the young men who went out and served. Mm -hmm. And we spend a lot of time talking about the Fair Play Committee because that was one of the really char characteristic, is not the word I want. That was kind of one of the things that made Heart Mountain stand out was having an organized draft resistance. But that was 63 people. You got several hundred who went out and fought in Europe. And their names are all listed up there. And it's a nice little walking trail that has... Yes, we also put in a memorial walking trail that has little viewing tubes that points out there are a few things still on the landscape that you can see from the original camp. And, um, then, and then again, we have the, the hospital up Right, there, the hospital. Which has a really neat big... Uh, brick tower that's yes, the what, chimney. 100, 150 feet tall. It, it, <laughs> it, you can it's see something it from, like that. from yes. 50 miles mm -hmm. any direction. Yes, and we actually, one of the things that the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation, which is the foundation that runs this museum, one of the things that they did in 2013 was fix the chimney because brickwork actually needs to be maintained. And between the lack of maintenance for about 70 years and the constant wind that we get out here, um, the chimney had shifted to the side by about 18 inches, which 18 inches doesn't sound like all that much given how big it is. But when you consider that it's about 180 tons of brick, you really don't want that thing to fall down. No. So one of the things the foundation did was do a fundraiser and then went in, fixed it up, and got it set up again. And yes, we have circled back to the entrance. And I just saw you jump at our ghost voices. Yes, yes. Uh, introduction voice, I guess, for when you come in. Yes. Well, what those voices are is they're linked to this telephone pole. Okay. Um, so I mentioned the orders coming through telling people that they had two weeks to move out. Those were this uh, sort of poster here is what those orders would have looked like. Okay. And so we put it here as kind of an initial introduction. This is the story we're telling. And then our, I call them the ghost voices, but we have recordings of some of the things people would have said as they were standing in front of this. Cool. This is, this is really good. I really appreciate your time today, Callie. You've been very, very informative. And, uh, 
Hopefully people will come and visit. This is easy to get to. It's between Cody and Powell, Wyoming, just off the highway, paved up to here, a little tiny bit of gravel, nice parking lot, uh, and just an excellent museum. And is there anything else that, as far as contact information or where to go on the web or anything like that that you'd like to maybe bring people's attention to? Anything you're doing because of coronavirus? <laughs> Are you doing virtual tours? Uh, so we have heartmountain.org, all one word, and that is the official museum website. And we have actually, so for the past two months, we have been closed due to the coronavirus. We have just started opening up, but right now we are doing by appointment only for visits. And you can set up those appointments at the website. The website also has some of the loose outlines of the history. And during the two weeks that we were closed, we were doing weekly online programming. Yes, I've gotten lots yeah. of those emails, and, and they were very good. So a lot of that is generally the more in-depth stuff that we often don't get to get into in sort of this open, this is the overall history tour. So detailed discussions of the resistors or of the 442nd or of the propaganda campaigns that started after Pearl Harbor. Just a chance of getting a more detailed look at some of the little corners of history. That and we what is do. your website again? Heartmountain.org. Okay. And, and heart is, as in the heart in your chest. H-E-A-R-T. Yes, because yes. some people have spelled it the other way, <laughs> as in a deer. Right. And it's named after a mountain that's, that sits out here just yes. outside the camp. It is named That's after Heart definitely Mountain. Definitely a big uh, landmark here in Wyoming, and it's called Heart Mountain. So, yep. Anyway, again, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for stopping by. We will be back by again. Great. And hopefully, people will come on by and take a look because this is a fantastic place. All the rolling go. Where am I to go? Meet Johnny. Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?